All right. Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series and podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Benjamin Weinthal, investigative journalist for the Jerusalem Post and Fox News, and writing fellow here at the Middle East Forum, join us to discuss Iran's shifting relations with Europe. Mr. Weinthal will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Benjamin Weinthal. Thanks, Stacey. Um, well, let me delve into, within the 15-minute framework, an enormously complex topic right now, namely, uh, is the age of a European peacement truly over with respect to the Islamic Republic of Iran and what importance does this have? Um, I'm just going to provide some background of the uh, European Union's policy after the um, 1979 Islamic Revolution and go through um, some of the, um, I guess, the soggy uh, European appeasement policies toward Iran's regime and the events of the last uh, six months, six, seven months that have um, shifted Europe somewhat to um, take a, a, a bit more of a, an assertive posture toward Iran. Um, so in 1984, um, the Europeans, specifically the two uh, Central European governments, two uh, post-fascist governments, Austria and Germany, uh, commenced um, diplomatic relations with Iran, roughly 83 and 84. The German uh, engagement was more important than the Austrian because of the trade involved and because Germany is the, the, key, the key player on the continent from an economic point of view. And in 1984, Hans Dietrich Geschner, the former, uh, former um, foreign minister, uh, also a for an ex-member of the, the German Nazi party, uh, during World War II, traveled to Iran to attempt, uh, from from the German perspective, at least on paper, to uh, moderate the malign conduct of the uh, five-year-old revolutionary regime of Khomeini, you know, the founder of the Islamic Republic. And I think an anecdote from the Iranian journalist and public intellectual Amir Tahari sort of captures. Uh, the climate back then, and, and I would argue what continued for many decades. Uh, Genschner declared his intention to engage in open, quote, critical dialogue, close, close quote, with the regime. But the notion sparked the joke at the time that critical dialogue was really an exercise in joint criticism by the mullahs, the Ayatollah regime, and the Europeans of the Americans, Tahari wrote. The German foreign minister announced at the time that his dialogue with Iran's rulers was a success in intensifying political relations, relations between West Germany and the Islamic Republic. The other uh, principle that animated uh, not only German foreign policy conduct toward Iran's regime, but I would argue most of Europe was changed through trade. So you have on the one hand, this notion of critical dialogue will produce a change in Iran's human rights behavior, which turned out to be to put it blunt, a sick joke, and then change through trade, which has been the guiding principle up until now, one could argue, with the uh, Iran nuclear deal, uh, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the formal name for the Atomic Accord, which is largely based on incentivizing Iran 
to change its behavior, namely to um, temporarily stop its uh, program to build a nuclear weapons device in exchange for um, at least um, in the first year of the agreement as much as uh, over $100 billion in sanctions relief. Um, so the, the notion of change through trade continues to this day. And as we can see, the, the, the ideologues of the Islamic Republic of Iran have largely ignored uh, that principle um, and um, are remain wedded to their notion, their, their strategy of exporting their revolution and at the same time um, sacrificing their population at the expense of uh, this highly dangerous um, ideology that um, crystallized as part of the revolution in 1979. Now, fast forward uh, and where we are right uh, up and before the uh, revolts in Iran took place last year, um, to give you again a flavor of the, I guess, what I refer to as this sort of so overall soggy European um, foreign policy toward uh, Iran, appeasement uh, policy, Politico's chief correspondent, uh, one of the best journalists out there writing on Europe and, and uh, Iran, Matthew Karnikshning, wrote, since Senator McCain's death, this, he wrote this in 2020, Germany has refused to back the U.S. on just about every major foreign policy front, whether concerning China, Russia, Iran, Israel, or the broader Middle East. At the same time, um, Mohammed Vaizi, chief of staff to the then president of Iran, Rouhani, stressed in a meeting with uh, Germany's ambassador to Tehran, Hans Udo Musel, that open quote, Germany has been Iran's traditional partner, close quote. Switzerland at the same time, this is back in 2020, tweeted on its uh, social, its microblog Twitter, signed during President Rouhani's visit to Bern in 2008, the road transportation agreement between Iran and Switzerland has passed Iran's parliament with a large majority. The agreement facilitates bilateral goods and passenger transport, marking the expansion of trade uh, ties in international trade. Now, again, this is part and parcel of the European project to incentivize Iran. And this has been going on, um, again, since the early 80s. How has this trade relationship played out? Well, one example, um, just back in 2018, the German paper, The Build, revealed that in, in a company called Krempel sold military applicable technology to Iran, the technology <clears throat> turned out to be used in Iranian manufactured chemical missiles that poisoned uh, 21 Syrians in 2018, including six uh, children. Germany's export policy commission told me when I was reporting on this that they didn't object to the sales and um, that type of trade still continues to this day where mainly Germany, which has as of last year an over $1 billion a year trade policy or uh, trade relationship with Iran continues to sell what's called due use equipment, military and civilian equipment. Now, folks know the United States has uh, both under Obama and the Trump administrations and other Republican and Democratic administrations has consistently um, classified Iran's regime as the world's 
uh, leading state sponsor of terrorism. Now, the, U the European Union has not done that, but where the big fight right now is taking place, and this leads me to the present, is the um, Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Now, the IRGC, the acronym for this organization, controls probably as much as 70% of Iran's economy. That's the high-end figure. So it's the, this organization also controls the Basij, the paramilitary group that's involved right now, along with the IRGC, in, in terms of smashing the, the revolts that have, have blanketed Iran since the murder of the young woman, which I'm sure folks, all the folks on this call have heard about, um, Masha Amini, the young Iranian Kurdish woman who was tortured and, and, and killed because she didn't uh, properly wear her, her headscarf, the uh, hijab, in mid-September. And Iran is still engulfed in, in, in protests because of her death. And this is the event, um, along with Iran's, uh, the Iranian regime's uh, sale or transfer of drone technology to Russia to help Russia in its illegal war against Ukraine. Uh, these are the two events that have largely uh, shifted uh, somewhat European Union policy. And I think the key area is um, the European Union, many of you might have read in January, almost unanimously passed a resolution calling for the IRGC to be classified as a foreign terrorist organization. Now, that is unimaginable um, from my perspective a year ago. It would have been Literally, I, I, you know, I would have thought you're, you're living on a, a, a different planet than Earth if you had told me the European Union a year ago, um, the parliament that is would uh, recommend to the European Union foreign ministers to classify the IRGC as a foreign terrorist organization. The vote, to give you a sense of, of how significant this was, was 598 to nine with 31 absentee, absentees. Um, now, um, the U.S. government under the Trump administration has already designated the IRGC as a terrorist organization. The United States is the only government. Where there might be some movement is Britain right now, um, where uh, there was a parliamentary debate and some movement to designate or prescribe the IRGC as a terrorist organization. However, the foreign office in Great Britain is, is going to great lengths to resist the uh, classification. Um, the European Union's um, foreign minister, chief uh, diplomat, uh, Borrell, the, the Spaniard, claims, um, and it's a bogus claim, that there's not a legal precedent to designate the IRGC. That's been debunked. Um, if I can provide information for folks who want, after the call, there's a, a good piece over at the Washington Institute by Matt Levitt on how the EU can and should designate the IRGC as a terrorist group. I've written about a German um, MP in the Bundestag from former Chancellor Merkel's party who has actually cited uh, law cases in Germany that would permit uh, not only the Germany, but the EU to designate the uh, IRGC as a terrorist organization. It's really nothing more intellectually complex right now within the EU of a question of political will. And the EU doesn't want to pick a fight with uh, Iran because of the um, nuclear deal. They don't want to jeopardize what they believe is, is an important nuclear deal um, to stop Iran's regime from obtaining a nuclear weapon. But of course, the deal is considered uh, woefully inadequate because it's only a temporary stop and it provides Iran with um, in enormous amounts of money to fund its terrorism. I should also mention that 
the IRGC generals, um, when when the EU was deciding the foreign ministers whether to classify the IRGC as a terrorist organization, this is how they described the EU. They called them dwarves, and then they told them, open quote, ask their American friends what the cost of confrontation with the Revolutionary Guards was and is, close quote. So the IRGC is also taunting the EU and the EU um, capitulated. That is the foreign ministers, not the, the parliament. Now, if the EU is not willing to do it, and I think it's important to get into uh, a plan of action, what can the EU do, our individual member states? Now, individual member states could designate the IRGC. We see that right now with the Hezbollah designations across Europe. The EU has not designated all of Hezbollah's movement as a terrorist entity. Hezbollah's folks know is Iran's chief strategic partner. Um, some countries have, like Austria and Germany and um, a number of other countries within in the EU, say all of Hezbollah is a terrorist organization. But France is impeding the EU from designating Hezbollah as a full terrorist organization, probably also Ireland. But a country like Germany could unilaterally decide tomorrow and stop hiding behind the curtain of the EU, we are going to designate the IRGC. And Germany has actually a legal precedent, even though they, they don't need this a, a court conviction, but they have one when um, the IRGC retained, and I reported extensively on this uh, in, in the media, retained a Pakistani man living in Germany, Saeed Mustafa, to collect information on pro-Israel advocates in Germany, France, and elsewhere in Western Europe. The German prosecutor said at the time, the espionage was part of an assassination plot, the Quds Force, an elite branch of the IRGC responsible for its extraterritorial operations, paid Mustafa at least um, 2,052 uh, euros in July 2015-2016 to carry out these uh, assassinations. Now, he was convicted. So, again, um, it's just a matter of political will in Germany to make this type of uh, prescription. That could then lead other countries to designate the IRGC. Now, I would argue not only is the, the nuclear deal, this um, highly flawed agreement that that hasn't been uh, implemented because it's currently being renegotiated after the Trump administration pulled out in 2018. That's one impediment as to why the Europeans don't want to designate the IRGC. And the other, I would argue, is obviously the business reason. Uh, the IRGC controls so many critical industries that the Europeans don't want to designate the IRGC because that would mean they wouldn't be able to engage in you know, the multi-billion dollar trade agreements that have flourished in the past and still do for many countries like Germany because that would mean they're engaging in trade with a, um, a prescribed uh, terrorist um, company and the Americans um, would also you know, clamp down. Um, so I think that's, I've tried to cover as much as possible within 15 minutes. And I, I guess what I'm trying to uh, capture right now is the main battle, the main um, front right now is over um, the IRGC and what the, are the Europeans willing to go as far as the Americans in terms of um, classifying the IRGC as a foreign terrorist organization. So I welcome the questions. Good questions are better than good answers. And uh, thanks for carving out the time to hear me for 15 minutes. Thank you so much uh, for all of that information. Before I get started and dive into these questions, what exactly does designated the, R 
designating the IRGC as a terrorist organization uh, mean for for Europe? Well, it would, um, a couple of things. First, it would allow European law enforcement agencies to expand their powers to investigate cases involving the IRGC. Um, it would allow prosecutors more latitude to investigate. And of course, investigatory agencies would have much more flexibility in terms of launching investigations into IRGC activities across Europe. Um, so, and the other, the other aspect is um, the, the IRGC um, is involved in comp with companies that are producing um, all sorts of hardware, military hardware for um, illegal wars and terrorist activities. So that also could potentially be curtailed if uh, on a global scale, if, if the RGC is designated. Thank you so much. So in the description, we uh, talked about the uh, Iranian acts of violence on European soil. Uh, Andrea Rose, Marine International Lawyer, asks, how should our governments react to Iran's standing hit squads to attack Jews inside our countries? Well, that's a very good question. I just did a long piece for uh, Fox News Digital um, about a week ago on the so-called Boston Mapping Project and the Zahor Legal Institute in the U.S. determined in a study that the Middle East Forum was part of, as one of the partners in pr producing this report, that the Islamic Republic is probably behind this so-called kill list targeting uh, Jews, Zionist organizations, and law enforcement agencies in Boston wanted to replicate these agencies. And I went through in my Fox report um, from a week ago, the sort of running list or a bill of particulars of Iranian attempts to uh, assassinate um, Americans um, and Iranian uh, dissidents, um, one of whom uh, is, is facing the death penalty right now in Iran, uh, Jamshad, uh, Shamhad, uh, Jimmy Shamhad from California, um, and I've written a, extensively about him. What what the, what the U.S. could do here in this type of case is, uh, you know, and I agree with John, John Bolton, who was one of the former uh, national security advisor, who was a target of Iran's assassination efforts, along with Mike Pompeo and others, and uh, Masih Al-Ninejad, the famous Iranian-American dissident. I would consider those acts of war and as, as an act of war um, targeting, you know, U.S. officials, former officials, Americans, um, the U.S. should respond accordingly in terms of how they perceive an act of war um, being played out or targeting uh, Americans and American institutions. So the U.S. needs to raise the, the bar and, um, well, not raise the bar, but actually uh, respond in a proportionate way to an act of war. So the Iranians get the message. It's important because the Iranians, and I'll quickly say in 2003, when the US invaded um, Iraq, that was when the first time when Iran capitulated and stopped its illicit nuclear weapons program. So the Iranians, and it's not anything, as, as I said, more intellectually complex than this, they only understand um, you know, raw force and, and saber rattling. And when you raise the stakes in terms of um, you're willing to prosecute the Iranians via forms of, of violence, uh, violence in the sense of, 
you know, you're, you're willing to show the Iranians that you're, you're prepared to use violence. And if they commit acts of war as they have against Americans by sending uh, assassins in Brooklyn to target Masi Alanijad where she lives, um, the U.S. should respond proportionately. And, and the, the sanctions they've slapped on the Irans are, are very, very mild. Thank you. J.R. Pride asked, uh, what would ultimately cause the fall of the current regime in Iran? It's a great question. Um, I mean, it's a question that I sort of struggle with um, every day when I talk to um, Iranians. Um, and I, I would um, argue that the 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 collapse the collapse of the regime has to take place um, via an internal um, upheaval, as we're seeing right now. Um, military intervention from the West um, is not going to, um, you know, it's not going to play out well as we saw in Iraq. But clearly, the West can support um, Iranians. I mean, one good example is um, the Iranians could. Um, excuse me, U.S. labor unions and Western labor unions could provide strike funds to Iranians who go on strike, provide them cash. Iran has a very porous border, and there's ways to deliver money to the workers who are on strike, similar to what the Americans, American labor unions did in the 1980s to the Polish trade union movement to bring about the collapse of communism. But again, the, the key right now is American leaders and also foreign leaders need to stand up and say, we support the protesters who are, who are battling it out right now on the streets of various cities in Iran. We show our solidarity. And, um, and I would argue, and no, no Western government has done this and the US government has not done this, including under the Trump, during the Trump period, should, go re, should cross the line and say, we support a post-Islamic Republic of Iran government, namely, um, you know, I don't like the, the phrase regime change because it has the connotations associated with Iraq, but we support democracy promotion in Iran, and um, that would mean the collapse of the Islamic Republic of Iran. We, we wish to see the Iran, the Islamic Republic toppled by a democratic movement. Thank you so much. Uh, David Levine asks, uh, a conservative website is indicating that Iran will now assemble its drones, which Russia is uh, using against Ukraine, in Russia itself. Do you have any information indicating that this is correct? And if so, what are the implications for Europe, Israel, and the U.S.? I don't have any indications about, about the, the drones being assembled. His question was within Russia, correct? Um, but it wouldn't surprise me. I, I just reported earlier this week um, for Fox News in an exclusive, um, and I, I guess I'm announcing this because it's so difficult to get exclusive stories, but I got exclusive material from foreign intelligence sources who said that the Iranians and the um, Russians, namely Putin, reached an agreement last year to circumvent a pr prospective nuclear deal and allow if the deal collapses, allow Russia to ship back the enriched uranium to Iran, because as part of the deal, Iran is supposed to ship its enriched uranium, which is the material used to build an atomic bomb, back to, um, uh, to Russia, and Russia is supposed to warehouse the material. But as part of this deal, because of the, the need for Russia to have drones from Iran and the, the invaluable military technology that Iran has provided Russia, Putin agreed to this deal in July of 2022. 
And that secret, it's, it's, it's a really a secret deal has, will, if it actually is implemented, guts the whole purpose of a future uh, nuclear deal. Now the US State Department neither confirmed it nor denied this secret deal to me. On, um, and the Iranian uh, regime, which I was surprised, answered me, and they, of course, denied it. But they're, they're, the Iranian regime currently denies selling drones to Russia, and that's just um, a complete fiction. Thank you so much. And on the flip side there, uh, Bob and Sue Radis ask, uh, the Russians have given... Uh, to Iran, some captured NATO equipment on the battlefield in Ukraine. Do the Iranians have the skill to reverse engineer this and then build NATO weapons? Um, I, I mean, I, I think yes. With with the right, um, I mean, you know, Iran is. We're dealing with a very, very sophisticated and formidable opponent um, in Tehran. Um, as as folks all on this call know, because everyone is. Uh, knee deep in these questions, as I can see in, in these issues from the questions I'm getting from you folks, um, Iran just came very close to um, develop or um, enriching weapons grade uranium. Right, they're very close to the 90% mark, as as was widely reported recently. So they they have the the wherewithal and the and the and the intelligence. It's just a question of um, how is this how how fast will they complete the the enrichment and then the question about reverse engineering it's it's the same question now they're desperate for western technology and that's why you see so many iranian middlemen in in europe who are um engaged in illicit activities and there's all sorts of unsavory deals going on between european countries and um and iran so it, it it's for me it's just a matter of time because the europeans in general also aren't um enforcing um there's not robust enforcement of the sanctions to stop this type of um highly sensitive technology from being transferred to iran thank you so much for that we have quite a few uh questions uh, regarding I can stay longer if you wish if we have time <laughs> We'll see how it goes. But just on this uh, topic of the, the Saudi and the Iranian rapprochement uh, brokered by China, uh, how do you see the impact of this uh, aspect, Carrie Hillebrand? And, uh, well, I saw, I mean, I, I, I read a, a tweet from Senator Cruz's national security advisor, Senator Ted Cruz from um, Texas, uh, Omri Sarin, um, who, who wrote, um, and I think this sort of captures my thinking, um, who wrote, during the Trumpet period, you saw normalization uh, agreements between Sunni Gulf countries and Israel. And now during the Biden administration, you see a normalization deal or agreement between two opponents who are, uh, you know, uh, really should be enemies. So it's really a, a, a bad sign, a collapse of, I think, American foreign policy in the region that this could happen, that Saudi Arabia, a country that's a threatened whose existence on some level is is threatened by Iran's nuclear weapons program and has been attacked by um, Iran's the Iranian regime's proxies the Houthis is now um, willing to grant this type of concession to Iran's regime so the the bottom line is it, it sends a message that from the Saudis that the Americans can't be relied on unfortunately the Biden administration it's a feeble extremely weak um, administration that won't go to great lengths to defend its allies in the region. 
So I see it as, as a catastrophe from the perspective of um, both U.S. security and, and from the security of, of Israel and the Sunni countries that oppose Iran's regime. Absolutely. And uh, if you could sum it up in, in just a few sentences, why do you think that the European Union is so hesitant to, to make moves against Iran? And an anonymous attendee follows up with, do you think World War III is already unofficially started? Well, I mean, uh, I, I think Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said, if I'm not mistaken, I have to I have to watch the complete interview. I've only seen snippets of it with uh, the, the London-based uh, Iran International or news organization that if Iran acquires a nuclear bomb, then it, it, it that's tantamount to uh, World War III. This is the same news organization, by the way, Iran International, that has to flee London because Britain can't protect Iran International. It's a very good news organization from Iranian regime threats. So they're relocating to Washington, D.C. And they've done the most aggressive reporting on the clerical regime in terms of exposing corruption and 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 Iran's regime labeled Iran International Terrorist Organization. Um, now, um, I think, as I mentioned, the EU is, is, is hesitant, or not even hesitant, they've capitulated um, on the IRGC question right now. That is the foreign ministers, again, not the parliament, because they don't want to jeopardize what they see as their central foreign policy project, namely the Iran nuclear deal. The, the EU foreign ministers and the EU countries like the Biden administration are deeply, deeply wedded to this nuclear deal. It's it's the, the functional equivalent of religion for them. I don't know how else to describe it because they won't deviate in any way from this nuclear agreement. It, you know, all sorts of very smart people out there like Gary Kasparov, the world's greatest chess player who predicted Putin's invasion of Iran, uh, Putin's invasion of uh, uh, Ukraine, excuse me, um, have been urging for years that the Americans and the other Western powers walk away from the Iran nuclear deal. Even before the invasion, he told me when I interviewed Kasparov that the, the, the West shouldn't be negotiating um, with, uh, with Iran um, over this JCPOA. And that's the feeling among most Iranian dissidents when you talk to them. Uh, abroad because it normalizes Iran's regime at a time when Iran is, is, is engaged in warfare against Ukraine. The other reason I, I mentioned earlier is the EU, I, I believe, um, doesn't want to designate the IRGC as a foreign terrorist organization because the stakes are very high in terms of trade. The IRGC controls as much, I, I've read some numbers from experts who study the IRGC very in, intensely, as much as 70% of Iran's economy is controlled by the IRGC. So if you designate the IRGC a terrorist organization, that means future oil and gas um, deals could be jeopardized. Um, all sorts of trade could be uh, dismantled as a result of this designation. Um, so the Europeans, uh, again, um, you know, they, they, they claim they're, they want to fill the, the language of human rights with meaning and content. But when it comes down to the nitty gritty, um, you know, they, they've retreated. All right. Well, thank you so much. Before we go, can you tell our viewers where we can find some more of your work? Well, I, I would. Uh, I, um, the, the Middle East Forum is very generous to publish or post a number of my articles on, on the website. Um, I haven't. People keep telling me I should uh, create a website, but I haven't got around to doing that just because 
as a deadline journalist, I, I just find myself coming up trying to get gas for air and coming up for air. Um, but you can go to the Jerusalem Post website. I have a, my email is there and uh, you can read, you know, they post most of my articles. And then um, Fox News has a search engine. Um, and I also, um, I just did a piece that might be of interest for viewers of this um, uh, podcast um, on uh, Oberlin College's Mohammed Jafar Mohalati. I know the Middle East Forum did an important segment on the Iran, the highest ranking um, former Iranian regime official in the U.S., Mohammed Jafar Mohalati, who teaches at Oberlin College and was Iran's ambassador to the U.N. between 87 and 89 and covered up the mass murder of 5,000 uh, Iranian political prisoners in 1988. I just did a piece for the National Post in Canada. It's a, it's a large paper there on how on Mahalati and uh, the connections between McGill University in Canada and Tehran University um, and, and McGill University's cooperation with a university in Iran that calls for the extermination of Israel and um, does all sorts of other um, you know, genocidal uh, activities against Israel and, and the West. Um, so, and if you have any questions, I, I can also, um, I can put my email, I guess, in the chat here. Should I do that, Stacey, or, or how do you want to proceed? Uh, you can, or you can just uh, say it out loud now and I'll type it in. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll type it in. Um, so there's my email at n at apost.com. It's with two N's, B-E-N-N -N at apost.com. So if folks have any information or any other um, any other questions feel or, or or wish to have any articles, um, I can I can uh, send them to you. All right. Well, thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you, Mr. Weinfeld, on, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, for our viewers, please be on the lookout for our weekly webinar offerings email coming out over the weekend. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Go on. Bye, Stacey. Bye.